0: From the ACLU, this is At Liberty. I'm Emerson Sykes, a staff attorney here at the ACLU and your host. A few weeks ago, the ACLU and a number of other civil rights organizations announced a landmark settlement with Facebook, resolving a case about companies using ad-targeting filters on Facebook to only show certain job postings, to be a police officer, for example, to men. Pursuant to the settlement, Facebook has removed gender, race, and age filtering options from ads dealing with housing, employment, and credit. This is good news, but it's only the tip of the iceberg when it comes to artificial intelligence and the use of algorithms to reinforce and automatize bias. So what is the impact on our daily lives when private companies and even governments delegate policy and enforcement decisions to lines of computer code that are almost never subject to public scrutiny? And what's it like to go toe to toe with Facebook and win? We'll discuss these questions and more on this week's show. Our guests are two ACLU lawyers. Galen Sherwin is a senior staff attorney on the Women's Rights Project, and Aisha Bandari is a staff attorney on the Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project. Galen and Aisha, thanks very much for coming into the studio today. Welcome to the podcast.
1: Thank thanks, you, Emerson.
0: So we often talk about the risks associated with artificial intelligence as some sort of science fiction future that's around the corner. But I'm really interested in how your work, and especially this case, highlight the ways in which the future is now. I quit Facebook actually in 2007 because of internet ads following me around. So uh, my favorite soccer cleats were on the Washington Post homepage, and they also had a box showing me what all my friends were reading at the time. So, you know, algorithms are obviously very powerful and can be very specific and hyper-targeted. But beyond creepy ads following you around, what's the real-world impact that clients have had based on Facebook's former job advertising policy?
1: Yeah, well, it's easy to see the ads that you are seeing in your Facebook feed, right? Like your soccer cleats. For me, it's the dress pant yoga pants that follow me around. (laughs) They've got my number. But you never think of what ads you're not seeing, right? And Facebook offers advertisers the ability to micro-target their ads to people. That's their selling point and what they claim makes their advertising platform more effective than other ad platforms based on users' interests and this vast trove of data that they collect about each of us on Facebook who haven't quit Facebook. (laughs) And, And unfortunately, among those criteria that they know about you and your user profile and from your behavior online includes things like your gender, your age, your ethnic affinity, as they used to call it, and other things that are related to disability and other types of protected categories when it comes to civil rights laws. So the issue arises not with the yoga pants or the soccer cleats, but really when you're talking about ads for economic opportunities like jobs, housing, and credit. And those are, of course, protected by our civil rights laws, which prohibit discrimination in advertising for those types of economic opportunities. So in terms of the real-world impact, the impact is that people may be having ads hidden from them that relate to economic opportunity, that relate to housing in a neighborhood that they might want to move into. That has the effect of perpetuating segregation, housing segregation, or job segregation, right? So the ads that we brought charges against Facebook about were ads related to employment in traditionally male-dominated fields. We had auto technicians, roofing, security system installation, all of these fields that were traditionally closed to women and the effect in real world is that women if they're not seeing those ads will never have the opportunity to know about them and apply or even to click on the page and find out what other opportunities might be available on the trucking company ad right
0: well, the thing that you pointed out is one of the sort of fundamental issues around the detectability of these problems in the first place. And I want to come back to Asia because I know that you've been working a lot on that side of things. But Galen, you've been working in the area of workplace discrimination and employment discrimination for quite some time, I know. How do you think that these ad targeting biases are the same or different from other types of employment discrimination that you've seen?
1: Well, discrimination can always be difficult to detect. Oftentimes, you have to prove the motive of the employer or potential employer to prove that that was discriminatory. And that can be hard under even traditional circumstances. But it's even more insidious, perhaps, in this case, because, again, you don't know what ads you're not seeing. In the world of ads, you don't know that you would have been the person selected to see that ad for the trucking company. So it can be quite difficult to connect the dots here. But what we do know is that these ads were going out and that the advertiser was hiding the ad from a universe of users based on their gender or their age. That has been prohibited under the civil rights laws since they were enacted in the 1960s and 70s. And that was based on a societal judgment that when it comes to job advertising or advertising for housing or credit, those have to be equal opportunity. They have to be made available to everybody, regardless of race, disability, age, gender. So... Even though this is a form of discrimination that has been clearly unlawful since the 1960s and 70s, you see it having a reemergence in the digital age with the era of micro-targeting.
0: Well, it's really interesting. Maybe turning to Asia for a moment, one of the things that I found really interesting, we can, again, come back to the issue of detectability and how you test for these algorithms. But this actual situation with Facebook was not so opaque advertisers could come and click and filter by gender, filter by age, and it was pretty straightforward. You didn't need to be a computer science expert to figure out what was going on here. Can you talk a little bit about the actual mechanism that was at work?
2: Yeah. I mean, the interesting thing here is you had Facebook's platform, which allows advertisers to intentionally target, right? So as you said, if you're an advertiser and you go on the platform and you are choosing your ad for yoga pants, right, you can sort of pick the demographics of users that you want Facebook to deliver it to. And as Galen has been saying, the problem arises when you're placing a job ad or a housing ad, right? Because then you're presented with the stark choice. And previously, you would have been able to say, I want to show my job ad for engineers only to men. And the advertiser could explicitly do that. And Facebook, using its own data, could identify users who are identified as men to Facebook and only show the ads to them. So this was what we would call intentional ad targeting. It was explicit. Advertisers knew what they were doing. Facebook knew who they were directed to show the ads to. And this is sort of a category that I think we can all say it's obvious. It violates the civil rights laws. Shouldn't be permitted to happen. But there's another category of ad targeting or biased delivery, which is what I would call maybe the algorithm-driven or automated, where there may not be an intentional choice by the advertiser. So I'll just give you an example. This was several years ago, but researchers at Carnegie Mellon did a study of Google Ads, and they found that job advertisements for high-paying executive jobs were disproportionately being shown to men over women. And in their paper, they couldn't conclude what the reason was. In fact, I think they might have expressed an opinion that it was unlikely this was an intentional choice, that some engineer had sat down and said, show the executive jobs to men, but that in fact the algorithm was learning from data in the real world. And maybe because men are more likely to hold those high paying executive jobs, maybe men are more likely to click on them for a lot of societal reasons because they're more likely to be directed to those jobs, more likely to have the confidence that those jobs are for them, whatever it is, right? All of this data in the world, the real world, the flawed imperfect world that we live in, was being incorporated into an algorithm that was likely learning from that and then replicating and exacerbating that problem, right? Because now it doesn't matter if you're a woman who was maybe likely to click on that ad, maybe not, you're less likely to see it.
0: I know that there were a lot of different cases that were brought against Facebook getting at this general idea, either from a racial perspective, from a gender perspective, from all sorts of different advocacy groups. We were one of a number of different organizations working in coalition. So can you just tell us a little bit about what that was like to work in such a broad coalition and maybe why the Communication Workers of America ended up being our client?
2: Yes, and I think Galen might be best to talk about that part of it. But generally speaking, the Facebook case was part of multiple cases. We worked with fair housing groups. The National Fair Housing Alliance was also involved in litigation or bringing charges against Facebook. And I want to be clear, there was also a lot of advocacy before the charges were brought against Facebook. The ACLU had been working with civil rights groups, including the Leadership Conference, National Fair Housing Alliance, other fair housing groups. There was sort of this collective realization among civil society groups working on both the equality and anti-discrimination side and also the privacy and technology side that this is an emerging problem and we have to work together on this. What was really exciting about this work in coalition was that we did bring together groups that have traditionally worked on technology issues or have expertise on that side with groups that have the deep knowledge of housing discrimination and employment discrimination, because it's both a technology problem, but it's also a longstanding equality issue. And the civil rights groups know exactly what the history of that is. They know what the fault lines are, right? So bringing those two areas of expertise together was, I think, really critical for getting the outcome that we got in the Facebook case.
0: Fantastic. Yeah, and I want to get into the settlement in more detail. But Galen, can you say a word about our clients?
2: Yeah, so
1: we were representing individual job seekers as well as the Communications Workers of America. And CWA has been involved for years in trying to open up jobs to women in male-dominated industries, and being advocates for workers and for equal employment opportunities. In terms of our individual clients who we were representing, those were individual job seekers, and one of them has a story which is pretty compelling. She has been looking for full-time employment. She's part-time employed in the education sector, and she's been looking for a full-time job for a really long time, but she lives in rural Pennsylvania where there are very few opportunities. She has a lot of different experiences in her background. She used to work in a factory, done a lot of home health work. She's done a lot of education work. And so she's qualified in a lot of different fields and was open to working in a lot of different fields as long as it was full-time and paid well. Her husband was receiving ads for working on oil rigs or for trucking companies. And she- was job-seeking, too, and realized she wasn't seeing any of those ads. In fact, she was seeing hardly any job ads at all on her Facebook feed. And she did use Facebook as one of the main routes to find employment, as so many people do these days an increasing number of people are turning to Facebook and other social media platforms in looking for jobs and other economic opportunities. So she had, you know, a point of comparison right in her own home. My husband's seeing these ads. Why am I not seeing these ads? And she's somebody who cares a lot about equal employment opportunity and about gender equality in the workplace. And so the impact on her life was she didn't have a gateway to these opportunities. She wasn't even learning about them. How can you apply to those jobs if you don't even see them in your feed or know about them?
0: It's really dramatic to think about these two job seekers in the same household being fed different information, and you can imagine if the algorithm thinks you're a housewife or a part-time worker, it will assume that you want to continue to be so.
1: Yeah, and I think that that's another piece of this is the algorithm learns, as Asia was saying earlier, who's most likely to click on an ad and though therefore even if the employer who's posting the ad hasn't selected for gender, it ends up skewing heavily in terms of the gender or other characteristics. There have been studies recently that show that it's based even on things like the image that's shown in the ad, regardless of what the text of the ad says. If it's a traditionally feminine image in the ad, more women will click on it and it ends up being skewed heavily towards women. I think they used an image of lumberjacks in the study that I'm thinking of that was skewed heavily towards men.
0: Well, this problem is bound up very tightly with all the problems in our society, but there are possibilities for wins. I mean, some people have called this settlement a win. I don't know if that's a fair characterization. But can you talk a little bit, maybe Aisha, about what actually is in the settlement and what's required of Facebook? Well, how are things going to be different now for
2: users? Well, I think it is fair to call it a win because Facebook is going to change its platform fundamentally. And that kind of change, I think, from an industry leader will hopefully lead other platforms to make similar changes. And so I think most critically, there's going to be a separate flow for housing, employment, and credit ads. So, you know, as I was describing earlier, right, if you were an advertiser and you went online and you were trying to advertise your yoga pants, you have all these options for targeting. But now, if you're advertising a job or housing or credit opportunity, you're not going to have the same full panoply of options, right? Because as we know, targeting on certain bases is illegal. You'll be directed through a separate flow. And so critically, you won't be able to target on the basis of gender or age, for example. And Facebook's also going to remove certain proxies. So for example, zip code targeting has long been used as a proxy for race, right? And given the state of residential segregation in America, we would be very concerned if you could target jobs only to people in certain zip codes and away from people in other zip codes. To me, the most exciting part of this is a recognition that in the category of economic opportunity, Your platform just has to be designed differently. You cannot facilitate, enable, encourage this kind of targeting. Advertisers will also have to certify that they understand what the civil rights laws are that apply. I think the separate flow is really something unprecedented. I have not seen that in any other major advertising platform. And hopefully other platforms are paying attention to this.
0: And there is a monitoring piece as well, right?
2: Yes, and that's very critical. There will be ongoing monitoring by the plaintiff's lawyers for three years. We are going to make sure that Facebook is living up to the commitments it made in the settlement. Critically, we're going to be able to do some testing as well to make sure that the ads that are supposed to be going through the separate flow in fact, are being directed to the separate flow so that you cannot disguise your job ad as something else and then be able to target on impermissible categories.
0: Well, Galen, can you take us behind the scenes and what is it like to negotiate with one of the biggest companies in the history of the world? Were there any surprising moments during your negotiations with Facebook, understanding that there are confidentiality issues (laughs) at play?
1: Right. We are limited in what we can say about the course of the negotiations. I can say that Facebook was willing to come to the table and discuss making these fundamental changes relatively early on in the ACLU's involvement in the case. There had been negotiations that stretched back before even we became involved in the case. And that happened when we filed the gender discrimination charges with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. I do think that was a turning point in the negotiations and that Facebook pretty quickly came to the table to discuss making these fundamental changes that I think up until that point had not seemed as possible. In addition to removing the intentional targeting options and the proxy categories that can be used as proxies for discrimination, I'll give an example of that. So If you could target people who are interested in wheelchairs, obviously there's going to be an association of people with disabilities there. Or if you are targeting people with an interest in breast pumps, okay, that's going to be most likely female people who have children. So those types of proxy categories come off the table now, and advertisers on Facebook's platform for jobs, housing, and credit will not have those options to target at all. And then in addition, Facebook committed to meet with us not only to make sure that they're living up to their commitment but also to look more closely at the questions of algorithmic discrimination and unintended bias in the remaining targeting tools that are going to still be on the platform. So they're going to be reporting to us. They're going to be studying the problem of algorithmic bias, and they're going to be studying the problems that might relate to other tools that are still available on its site that could unintentionally replicate bias. And looking at those results and talking about solutions collaboratively with this group of plaintiffs and other experts that are going to be at the table. So I think it's really a huge promising first step. The work is not finished by any means. And I think the biggest unanswered question is the question of algorithmic bias and how the algorithms learn and unintentionally result in biased results. But that's going to be a part of the ongoing work that we're committed to doing with them.
0: Well, huge congratulations to the whole coalition. It's a really, really important case. I think one of the areas in which we are sort of peeking over the horizon, and not even just over the horizon, something that's already with us today, is not just companies using these algorithms, but also governments. And I know that, Galen, you and your team are starting to look a little bit at instances where the government has been using algorithms to enforce child welfare laws. So similar to what we were talking about in terms of Facebook, where uh, an algorithm observes what's in the world around it already. We know that in child welfare cases, black families are much more likely to face disciplinary uh, removals or other types of enforcement actions from child welfare organizations than white families who have the same kind of situation. So we see where prior reporting, investigations, arrests, and removals reflect existing biases. So what do you see as the biggest problem here when we have the government using these algorithms as opposed to companies?
1: Well, no matter who's using it, the biggest problem is that the algorithm is a black box. There's almost no public information that's available about how the algorithm operates in any of these contexts, whether it's the criminal context or child protective services or in the case of private advertisers, you know, ad delivery. And there are multiple points at which bias infects the process. So it can come in from the data set that's being fed into the algorithm from the outset. And if that data set is already skewed in one way or another, then that's going to infect it going forward. There's, of course, human bias from the programmers that comes into play. And so a good example of this is in the Child Protective Services context, Black families are more likely to be reported for abuse or neglect than white families with identical situations or symptoms. And if that's the data set you're starting from, you're already skewed heavily on grounds of race. And so that just has a snowball effect in terms of the impact on families. And families can't know anything about how it's working in order to really challenge it. A big part of the work that we are trying to focus on is the due process concerns that arise when your life is being impacted in such fundamental ways, whether it be your personal freedom or your family unity, and you don't have any means of challenging the methodology that's leading to those results.
0: Well, let's dig in a little more on this issue of the black box, where no one really knows what's going on inside these websites or platforms, and sort of the fundamental problem that you're describing with these algorithms. And Aisha, I know you've been working a lot on a case called Sandvig v. Sessions, where a university researcher was actually testing websites and algorithms for bias, but the testing he was carrying out sort of put him at risk of violating the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act, which makes it a crime to create false accounts or violate websites' terms of service. So, when you first told me about this case, I think my reaction was what most people might say, which is how is it even possible that it's a crime to violate the terms of service of a particular website?
2: Yeah. So, one of the questions that has arisen is how can we know that there's bias going on, right? So, just fundamentally, how do we know that there are differing results, right? So, how do we test for this? And one of the methods that is used is this outcomes based audit testing, meaning I compare what one user sees versus another user, and I see if they're different. You look at the outcomes because, as Galen said, if there's a black box and it's hard to explain what the algorithm's actually doing, what we can look at are the results. And so we represent, in the Sandvik case, computer scientists, researchers, who want to test algorithms for bias. They want to look at the outcomes that are shown to different users and compare the results and see if they differ on race, gender, age, categories that we'd be concerned about. But in order to do that testing, they often have to violate website terms of service. Website terms of service are the small print that... Everyone reads very closely. Yeah, right. (laughs) Um, The tiny print at the bottom that almost no internet user ever clicks on. But they say a lot of interesting things, which I bet most users don't know. Things like you cannot automatically record the content of the website, even if it's publicly available. So... Often they prohibit something known as scraping, which is a common technique used by journalists and researchers to quickly and automatically record the content rather than taking physical screenshots or handwriting it down. I've even seen terms of service that say you cannot manually record the content of a website. So if you were to just write down, oh, here's a job ad. I want to have the information. Technically, that's a violation of terms of service if they've written that, but Most critically, they often say things like, you cannot create accounts using false information, or you cannot create an account not using your real name. And this is the really critical key piece that's a problem, because in the offline world, when we have testers go in to test, let's say, a housing agency for discrimination A common audit technique is to send in actors, a white actor and a black actor, let's say, with identical credentials for the house that they're looking for and see how they're treated. And often you'll have to send in multiple people because a one-off instance doesn't give you a pattern, but you can do this over time. Similarly, with correspondence audits for employment discrimination, you will often have people send in identical resumes that are just have different names that are coded differently based on gender or perceived race or uh, background. And you see what happens. And really, you have to hold the other things constant, right? You have to hold the qualifications and the credentials constant. Otherwise, you can't know whether the discrimination is really based on race or gender. Think about doing that online. How do you do that online without providing false information to a website, right? You have to oftentimes create new, clean accounts that don't carry all the baggage of our searching history. So if I were to go onto a website and see the ads that I see, I don't know what part of my browsing history is leading to me seeing that, right? So a researcher who wants to control all the factors has to create clean, new accounts. Let's say they have one that's coded as male and one that's coded as female. And then they can actually compare and say, okay, Am I seeing different job ads? Am I seeing different housing ads? And can I attribute this to gender or race?
0: Right, because we can't just rely on keen-eyed female job seekers looking over the shoulders of their husbands that Mm -hmm. are also applying for jobs at exactly the same time. We need to have academics who are able to do this in a systematized way. And what I think is shocking is not just that the websites don't want them to do this, but actually it's a violation of the law to do
2: this. It is if the website's put in their terms of service that you cannot do these things, these common testing techniques, then it is a crime under the Federal Computer Fraud and Abuse Act. The CFAA is a, I think it's fair to say, much maligned law. It has long been known in the computer security community as a flawed law. It was passed in the 80s before the internet as we know it existed. And there is a provision in the CFAA that has been interpreted by federal prosecutors and courts to cover terms of service violations. And so, unfortunately, this has had a real chilling effect. There are researchers and computer scientists who continue to do this work despite the threat of potential prosecution under the CFAA. But then there are also others who don't. And I have heard from journalists who say, I'm a freelancer or I don't work at a major institution that would have my back if some legal issue arose. And so I'm just not going to do this research. Which means that we as Members of the public who are increasingly subject to these algorithms every time we go online don't know the full picture of what's happening because everyone who could be testing it is not, right? So that's why we brought this lawsuit challenging the Computer Fraud and Abuse Act on behalf of a set of computer scientists and journalists who want to test for bias online. And it's a First Amendment challenge, arguing that they have a First Amendment right to engage in the false speech that they'd have to engage in, which is the same as would happen offline, right? And it's a pre-enforcement challenge, meaning that no researcher or journalist has been charged under the CFAA for this type of testing. But nonetheless, the fact that it is a criminal law is putting them under the threat of prosecution— for engaging in things that they have a constitutional right to engage in, and that is in the public good.
0: So what does it look like if you win? Is the law out or it just can't be applied to these types of researchers or some other solution you're proposing?
2: So, you know, the way that the case is framed right now, we're asking the court to recognize that the law could not be applied to this type of testing. And we think that that's really critical because as long as this testing is not happening in a robust way because people are afraid, we're not going to know— the kinds of algorithmic bias that's happening. We won't be able to see the next generation of cases challenging this kind of bias. But, you know, I think certainly there's a lot of different ways that the CFAA is problematic, and hopefully there would be some appetite to reform it, because I think it's widely recognized in the tech computer security community, but now also in the civil rights community, that this law is a real barrier to civil rights enforcement online.
0: Well, Galen, one of the things that you talked about was that there are so many steps along the process where bias rears its head. And I'm wondering, for advocates and for folks that you're working with, are we just sort of doomed to be playing whack-a-mole, sort of we see a problem, we see these uh, job ads being targeted, now they can't target the job ads anymore. We see these researchers who are at risk because of certain parts of the CFAA, and we want to make sure that they're not at risk of that anymore are we sort of condemned to putting out fires in this area? Or is there any way that we could get ahead of these issues a little bit?
1: I think that we're all starting to grapple with the many-headed hydra that is algorithmic discrimination. And there has been a concerted effort to bring together civil rights organizations and others with interest in this area, particularly experts who can speak to the more technical aspects of this and think about systematic approach to the problem so that we are not playing whack-a-mole. That doesn't yet fully exist, but I would say that there have been really promising steps over the last, say, three to five years to make that happen. I do think that some of the litigation that's being done has been setting up some flares and that all of the platforms are now on notice that this type of discrimination is something they should be paying very close attention to. So not only the intentional targeting, but also the delivery and targeting and the algorithm itself.
0: I'm interested in hearing broadly about sort of what you want governments to do. This is a big debate whether the government is itself using the algorithms or whether we're asking the government to regulate these platforms more some people are calling for the government to regulate these platforms less some people are asking for the platforms to regulate themselves in a better way so both with the government as algorithm user but also as a law enforcement entity what are we really wanting the government to do here
2: so when it comes to the government as an algorithm user i think there's got to be transparency democratic oversight and accountability So many states and municipalities have introduced algorithms in, for example, the benefits context or the child welfare context, and there hasn't been a process of public debate and oversight. People haven't been informed that this is what's going to happen going forward. And I think that there has been some movement now towards changing that. So, for example, New York City started by appointing a task force to look into the use of algorithms throughout the city, whatever agencies might be using them. The task force is meant to be composed of a variety of stakeholders, including members of the affected communities, experts from civil society, and so forth. But I think what really has to happen going forward is whatever structure is set up for transparency and accountability, it has to be meaningful and robust. The public should know if there is a child welfare algorithm being used in a city, has there been an audit conducted to look at bias? And what are the results of that audit? I think there's also going to be a lot of debates in the coming years about certain contexts in which algorithm use is just inappropriate. Certain areas where we think the due process interests are so critical that we don't trust the decision to an algorithm. We think a human being should take accountability for the decision because it impacts people's lives. And then when it comes to private use of algorithms, I do think that one basic step would be enforcement of existing civil rights laws. So making sure that federal, state, and local agencies that are charged with enforcing the equality laws, in fact, they're building out the expertise, using the authority that they have to get information from platforms and really robustly enforce the laws that we do have. And I think there is also, of course, a larger question about whether there is a new comprehensive law that is needed to address algorithmic bias particularly in the areas of housing, credit, and employment. But I think there are things that we can do even now.
0: I'm also interested in hearing if there's anything that users can do, because I think part of what's interesting about this dynamic is that users are subject to all these things but feel so disempowered because there's a black box, because they have no idea what they're not seeing, because Facebook is a huge company with billions of dollars and billions of users. So is there anything that we can tell users that they can or should do to help try to increase accountability and decrease discrimination online?
1: I think Facebook and other platforms have taken steps to try and give users a greater control over the types of ads they're seeing, as well as information on why they're seeing particular ads. And in Facebook's case, that ended up ensnaring them a little bit um, because you can click on any ad in Facebook. There's a little drop down arrow you can click that says, why am I seeing this? And it will take you to a pop-up screen that says, you're seeing this because the advertiser wanted to reach men between 21 and 55 who live near wherever it is, right? Brooklyn, New York. And so in that case, that was part of the evidence that we were able to use to bring the charges that we brought against these employers. And I will also mention the case against Facebook settled, but the charges against the individual employers who used its platform in this way are still pending before the EEOC. If people are seeing ads that are age or gender restricted or restricted based on other protected categories that are for employment or credit, please feel free to send them our way. We want to know about it. And there have also been a number of news investigative reporters who have done a great amount of work to try and bring those types of discriminatory practices to light. You can look on your Facebook preferences as well. You will find out what advertisers have uploaded your information or shared it. And I recently did this. It's a tremendously long list, including every rental car company and every car dealership in the country, apparently, which is very strange. So you may be surprised at what you're seeing. And there are some steps that you can take to tweak your own preferences if you are still a Facebook user or a user of one of these other platforms that can help limit or control it somewhat.
0: Aisha, any advice for people who are unwilling to take my sort of Luddite approach of leaving the platforms altogether? Is that our <laughs> only option? I mean, I guess the final word I would love to hear from you, whether... You think that we are really sort of down the rabbit hole in this AI thing, we're just going to have to chase it out the other side or whatever the (laughs) metaphor would be? Or do you think that we really on balance are doing a pretty good job of managing these risks and there are some problems, but overall artificial intelligence is helping us in any number of ways and we're just trying to clean up the sort of unintended consequences?
2: To your first question about what people can do, I think there are plenty of guides out there, right? Organizations like EFF and others give advice on what to do. Electronic Frontier Foundation. Exactly. Electronic Frontier Foundation and other groups give advice on how to minimize your digital trail, how to avoid those annoying ads that follow you just because you search for something on Google once. And I think that, you know, depending on your appetite for that and how much of a Luddite you want to be you can limit the data that you're putting out in the world. But at the end of the day, it's not practical for most people. We all live in this world. If the jobs and the housing and the other opportunities are online or just our social life, our friends, our community, we're going to be online. And so I think that, you know, while users can be empowered to take certain steps and there should be greater transparency from the platforms to users on how they can limit their options to share data, right? The default should be private, not public. I think at the end of the day individual users or even users acting collectively can't necessarily solve these problems, right? Like, that is why we need investigative journalism and academic research to do this systematically, that we need that expertise. We need regulatory bodies to take action. It's great for users to be empowered, and platforms should definitely be more transparent to users about what the options are to them to limit what they're seeing or what data they're being forced to share, but it's not going to solve the problem on its own.
0: Well, thanks very much for all of your amazing work. And thanks very much for coming on the podcast, Galen and Aisha. Thanks very much.
2: Thank you. Thanks.
0: Thanks very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed this conversation. If you like this episode, be sure to subscribe to At Liberty wherever you get your podcasts and rate and review the show. We appreciate the feedback. Till next week, peace.